Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel 22. You know, I consider it a great privilege and a high responsibility to stand in front of you and be responsible for this book and in holding the Word of God before you and to preach, I hope, on the behalf of the Lord to the people of God. And I hope you as well are willing to receive what the Lord would have to say to us today that it may impact both the speaker and the listener as we open up the Word of God with one another. 1 Samuel chapter 22 We're reading about the life of David. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was, some translations have, discontented or bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became commander or captain over them. And there were with him four hundred men. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did God save you? Why did God save you? What is the reason behind God saving you. I would like to give you ten reasons why God saved you. And I want you to look at them, if you could, with me one by one. And let's evaluate this and ask ourselves this question. Is this why God saved me? Number one, and they're, they're, these, by the way, are not in a priority of a, of a list. These are just a list and I will particularly pick on one of them for our purposes this morning, but in preparation for this sermon, it made me think about, you know, why did God save me? What is His purposes in saving me? And I think all of us should ask that question. You know, there was a book written years ago called, What is the Meaning of Life? What is the meaning of our life now? What is our meaning as a Christian? Let's look at ten reasons why God saved you, saved me. Number one, To make you His own. Aren't you glad you're not your own? That you have been taken over by the Lord. You are His prized possession. The Bible says that His people are His portion. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You're not your own. That's something that happened when we got saved. It's like we turn the keys over to God. It's like we said, here, Lord, here's the steering wheel. And we were glad to give it to Him. Because we realized our life was out of course. That we weren't heading in the right direction. Something was going on inwardly that was troubling us. And God, in His mercies and goodness, drew us to Himself, opening our hearts, revealing Himself to us, To make us His own. That's something that we should be declaring. I'm not my own. I belong to Him. It tells us about an elder. One of the reasons why the Holy Spirit raises them up is to feed the church of God which He has purchased with His own blood. So you have become God's purchased possession. We're owned by Him. We're not our own. Secondly, the second reason why God saved you 
was to conform you to be like His own Son. Of His Son, He says, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And just think of it, God wanted to make a multitude of children to be just like His Son. He predestinated us with that purpose that we might be conformed to the image of His dear Son, Romans 8, verse 29. The third reason why God saved us was to save us from the wrath to come. If you weren't saved, you'd be on your way to hell. And that's where we were heading before we got converted. Thank God He stopped me from going on in my mad career. Because the wages of sin for me and you would have been death, would have been punishment, would have been wrath. The wrath of God is a real thing. And that would have been poured out on us, but God in His goodness and mercy took the sins of ours, placed them on His Son, and then placed His wrath upon His Son for our sins. Therefore, we don't have a judgment ahead for our sins. Wrath has been poured out in full upon the Lord Jesus. And it tells us in Scripture in Romans 5 verse 9, much more than being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. From wrath through Him. Now that's future tense, right? We shall be saved from wrath. This is why people take advantage of the fact that they don't get an immediate punishment for sin. Ecclesiastes 18.11 says that the heart of a man is set against God because God doesn't execute sin, the punishment for sin immediately. So punishment for sin is postponed or suspended. But in that postponement, people assume that God will not punish them or that there's no judgment ahead for them. Absolutely false when we come to know the God of the Bible, the true and the living God. The fourth reason why God saved you was to make you a worshiper of God. Before your conversion, you worshipped people, you worshipped things, you worshipped yourself, you were an idol factory. You had many idols. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God, for God is not in all his thoughts. Before our conversion, God may have had a little piece of our mind. He may have had a little piece of our life, but he definitely was not on the throne of our life. But when he comes into our lives, we realize the great things that God has done for us in the expense that had to be paid for the penalty of our sins and for the Lord to bring us into His family, we want to fall down and worship with a loud voice and say, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. We want to thank you, God, for introducing Yourself to us. We didn't know God before we were converted. You knew about Him. You knew something of Him. But when you get converted, you enter into a personal relationship with Him. A knowledge that cannot be explained rationally. It's a supernatural revelation that's given to you and you suddenly become a lover of God. 
And a lover of God is a worshiper of God. And the Scripture says that God seeketh such to worship Him. John 4, verse 23 and 24. That's what God sought us out for, to be a worshiper of God. How often do you worship? Is it a once a week thing? Is it in the service when you sing these beautiful songs, these lyrics, beautiful music that's provided? Is it on occasion, occasions that you worship God? We should be like, you know, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle or the temple. There was what was called the burnt offering that was a daily burnt offering. It never stopped burning. The continual burnt offering is what it's called. And that's what our heart should be. Our heart should be like an altar. And the incense that's put on that altar are the thoughts that we have of God. When we read the Word of God, when we meditate, when we pray, those incense thoughts come into our altar of the heart and they burn up as praises to Him. That's what it is to be a worshiper of God. And yes, we have highlight times during the day or during the week where there's an exceptional moment or, or hour or half an hour or minutes when we really just want to like shout hallelujah out to the Lord. We are so thankful that we come to know the true and living God. Not merely that we are saved, but Jesus says, I am come that they might know Thee, the only true God. In Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. What a wonderful thing it is to know God. To know Him is to love Him and to love Him is to want to worship Him. And we don't just worship Him because of what He's done for us, but we worship Him for Himself. Who He is. Fifthly, a reason why God saved you was to make you a witness for God. You know, God has a desire... To spread His name abroad. God wants to be made, make Himself known to humankind. And believe it or not, you and I are the signposts. We are the lights on the dark street that are expected to shine for Him. So that when people see us, we're, we're considered to be the excellent in all the earth. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. There's something distinct about us. We give God all the glory for that. And I know all of us fail and maybe our light is not burning as brightly as it ought to be or could be. Nevertheless, we do have instilled in us the power and the anointing by God to be witnesses for Him. You shall be witnesses unto Me, the Lord tells His disciples, and that applies to you and I. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. When the Thessalonians got converted, when Paul later writes to them, he says, you know, I didn't have to say anything about you. Because you yourselves have been a testimony. People have seen the faith that you have spread abroad. I've seen this and I probably have done it myself when someone makes a commitment to the Lord or says a prayer to the Lord for salvation. And then we immediately assume that that is the that's the turning point, and that's how they got saved. And we introduce them over and over again to people. Oh, I want you to meet so and so, brother so and so. He just got saved, or she just got saved. Let's be a little hesitant there. Let that brother or let that sister's light shine out of them. They don't need an introduction, they are a testimony. They should be the witness for the Lord. 
at a, a small little gathering last night, um, sitting with a Christian couple. I just met them for the first time. My first question was, tell me, how did you get saved? What a joy it was to hear how the Lord worked in their life and brought them to saving faith. And how that now we're witnesses for God in this world. Number six, the sixth reason why God saved us. To glorify God. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God. That's what we want to do, glorify Him. It's not me. It's not myself. It's Him that I want to give glory to. He purchased us with His own blood, right? For what purpose? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are God-glorifying people. That's what we should be bringing to the world and to God. We're glorifying Him in the way in which we live, in the way in which we act, the way we think, our spirit, our attitudes. Granted, we're not perfect. And I don't want anybody to hang their head down. Because if God is for you, nothing and no one can be against you. If you feel like you want to hang your head and hold it low, it's because possibly something has come into your life that interfered with that. It's not that God has, has turned off the fuel. He is still pumping it to us, as it were. We still have the spiritual energy from Him. It's a matter of us utilizing it. And God's desire is that we glorify God. Even when we confess our sins, we're giving glory to God. We're giving Him first place in our life. Sixth, excuse me, seventh. God saved you so that you could be an example to your fellow believers. You know, one of the things that I, I love to take advantage of this, I love to read the Bible and I get a lot out of the Bible and it teaches me. I love to pray. It affects me. It also moves me and teaches me. The Lord communes with me in that way. But I also love watching the lives of my fellow brothers and sisters. I love to see the fruit in them. It edifies me. It convicts me sometimes too. Why are they so joyous? Why are they so on fire for the Lord? And I, and I, I think what they have is what I have. They're not like on a top shelf and I'm down here. We're all on the same tier together. We all are gifted with the same Spirit of God. Yes, we have different individual gifts. I'm not talking about gifts. I'm talking about simple installment of the Spirit and the new life that we have in the Lord. We're expected to be able to live out of, out, out of our life that which is to the glory of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. When God converted you, He changed you so that you're demonstrating something that you weren't before. And when I see that, even in the youngest believer, I love to watch the changes that occur in their life. What I don't want to do is, I don't want to overpower them. Yes, they need discipling, 100%. But you also need to let the Spirit do His work in an individual and bring them under Holy Spirit conviction and under Holy Spirit influence so that their lives are motivated 
by God and for God. And it's not something that's imposed upon them externally, but rather it's something of the workings of the Lord within them. Eighthly, why God saved you was so you could be a follower of Jesus. That seems so simple. But you know one way we can describe our lives? I'm a follower of Jesus. Who are you following? Everybody is following something. Their own mind, their own conscience, the crowd that they hang out with, the movies that they watch. Whatever is in your mind and in your heart, that's who you become a follower of. But for those who have become the Lord that are saved, remember Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and what? Follow me. Wow, what a path that is to be on, is to be a follower of Jesus. I, I must admit, before I was converted, I followed the crowd. I followed people. Yes, and I looked up to certain ones that in my mind were like the best of the best and I wanted to imitate them whether I admitted it or not. I sort of wanted to fall into the mold that they were like. But when the Lord saved me, now I want to be able to say, truly, Lord, I'm following you. And we'll get to that point in a little bit. And ninthly, the reason why God saved you was to demonstrate His love toward us. And that love that's in us is a love that we have, number one, for the Lord. We love the Lord our God with all our spirit, our soul, our mind, and our strength. But we also love our neighbor as ourselves. And you know who's our closest neighbor? Is my brother and sister. The ones for whom Christ died. Those are the closest people I have on the earth. Those who have had the same Holy Spirit transforming power come into them that has to me and revealed Christ to me and shown me that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I love my brothers and sisters and I love the Lord my God. And you know that love that we have for one another is a testimony to God's love that He has poured into our hearts. When I was converted, I was a YMCA... Um, gym rat. I was there like every day, six days a week at least, whenever I could get there. I was in the weight room. I was on the basketball court. I was running around the track. I just lived there. But then I got saved and I knew all these why guys and I wanted to share the gospel with them. And God amazingly began to save one and another and another and another. And these guys who were you know, sort of acquaintances or friends or somebody in the weight room, someone that I crossed paths in the locker room with, now all of a sudden God has saved them. And all the other Y guys that are members and who are regulars like we were, they're, they're saying, this is amazing. You guys are like one people. You're, you're so bonded together. And you know, we had never even thought of it that way. But we just said, you know, that's amazing. The love of God that came into our lives, that is, we share now with one another, that the world, and that's what Jesus prayed for, the love that's in me would be in them, and the love in them would be for one another, so that the world can know that you have sent me. And isn't that what Jesus says? When He has come, 
He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of, when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit comes into our lives, that's how God uses the Spirit in bringing people to an awareness of His love that He has demonstrated in saving us, in the love that we have for one another. He's demonstrated that in His love towards us. And tenth reason why God saved you is to, and we probably would never think of this one, to exhibit His wisdom to the angelic world. To exhibit His wisdom to the angelic world. Now, is there a scripture for that? Where would I come up with a scripture for that? Is that such a thing? Well, we read in the book of 1 Corinthians 10 about the angels are watching. We have there about the woman's head covering. It talks about, um, uh, which is assigned to the angels. And we have uh, in 1 Corinthians 4 about that we are a spectacle unto the world and to angels. We are the theater and they're watching us. And I would say the most distinct verse in this Ephesians 3, verse 10 and following, it says, who created all things through Jesus Christ with the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So God, in essence, is using the church as an object lesson before the angelic world about His wisdom. God's wisdom. You know, when the Queen of Sheba came up to Solomon to hear and see the wisdom of Solomon, she was totally breathtaking. She says, the half had not been told me. It wasn't just what he said, but it was the whole order of things that so impressed her that she said, wow, the half had not been told me. Well, God, in a sense, has before the angels demonstrated His wisdom. And as they look down from above, they see the wisdom of God in the church. What is the church? A unity of people who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into one family, members one of another. That is a miracle. That's a whole new creation that God has brought into existence and we are that object lesson before the angels as the wisdom of God. Now, out of all of these eight, and let me quickly just repeat them, He saved you to make you His own, to conform you to be like His own Son, to save you from the wrath to come, to make you a worshiper of God, to make you a a witness for God, to glorify God, to be a witness for Him, to be a follower of Jesus, to demonstrate His love toward us, and lastly, to exhibit His wisdom to the angelic world. I have said that these are not in some priority order. But the one that I would like to cite this morning, and it has to do with, of course, what I've read in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2, about David being in the cave. David, in the chapter before that we read about him, was, remember, he had lied to the priest about that he was on a quick journey, didn't have a, didn't have a moment to pick up any weapons, not even to prepare meals for transportation, but he and his young men with him were hungry, and he pleaded with the priest, and the priest gave to him what was supposedly consecrated bread only for the priest. The priest 
cut him some grace, if you will. Same thing, he said, do you have any weapon here? Is there a sword? And sure enough, there was Goliath's sword because he had no weapons. And so the priest just sincerely believed what David told him. He gave him the sword of Goliath. And David says, there is none like it. And then right at the next episode in David's life, we find him going down to the Philistine territory. We're in Gath, where the giant was actually from. He goes to Gath, you could say the, the citadel of the Philistine tribe, and he goes there and tries to camouflage himself and mix in with the Philistine community. And they say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, isn't that David? Isn't that the one they said Saul has slain his thousand and David his ten thousands? So they picked him out of the crowd. David's reaction was, uh-oh, they know who I am. So what does he do? He pretends himself to be a madman. That he was like a retarded person, if I can use that word, or uh, what we would say mentally challenged, severely so, that drool was coming down his face. And he acted and pretended that this is what happened to him, that he was a crazy man. And because of that, he posed no threat to them at the moment. And David was able to skirt away and go off. And now we come to the next chapter. So, 21st chapter, we have a very low point in David's life. He's supposed to be a man of faith, a man after God's own heart. And as I said last week, there are characters in the Bible that we're told to follow their faith. And David is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And I said last week, they're not only things that we can learn from the faith of their lives lived, but also for the folly of their lives lived. So I can learn from the mistakes that others have committed in the past so that I myself don't do the same thing. Sometimes when someone has had an alcoholic problem in the past and has overcome that, he can be an effective witness to someone who is falling themselves. Well, we can learn from David's fall something for ourselves. We find him now in a state of recovering. How, did he, how would we know that? Well, one of the ways would be Psalm 142 that was read by our brother, which is titled at the very beginning of that psalm that the psalm was written by David at the time when he was in the cave, and likely this cave of Adullam. Some suggest it could be in the cave of Engedi. We'll talk about that other cave in the future. But here, he's in the cave of Adullam. And from this psalm, we learn what was going on in David's life. What was on the inward parts. And like all of us, you know, we, we uh, have an outward life and we have an inward life. And sometimes you may have gone through a horrible time and no one knows it. Nobody but you knows it. But maybe in those horrible times, you're on your knees. Maybe you're, you're getting through this by open, honest confession. I cry aloud, David says, to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. Look what he had just done in the previous chapter that I mentioned. I pour up before Him, that is God, my complaint. Before Him I tell my trouble. My spirit grows faint within me. It is You who watches over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I mentioned last week, sometimes when we are sort of out on the, on the water 
and we're not so skilled at swimming, we find ourselves nervously reacting. Well, David got himself into troubled water. And he seemed to sink deeper and deeper into it because he felt like the Lord was not with him. That's a feeling that we can have. I mentioned that last week. I mentioned about a baby, you know, teaching a baby how to walk and you sometimes have to let those hands go so that they can take a few steps on their own. And sometimes God will take His hands off so that we can take some steps on our own. And when we do so, sometimes our faith is tested and we find ourselves falling and failing. And that's what David had done. He had failed and he had fallen. And he's crying out to the Lord in desperation. In essence, restore me, Lord. Hear my cry. I'm a troubled man. No one cares for me. God, I'm lifting up my voice to You. I cry to You, Lord. I say You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in a desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise Your name. I love that. Set me free from my prison, that I might praise Your name. David's a sweet psalmist of Israel. David has written or will write 70 plus psalms that will compose a whole book of psalms. From psalms, multitudes and millions and zillions of people have profited from David's opening up his heart to God and laments and praises and mourning and joy and all the different emotions that go along with life. They're all exposed. And David's exposing his heart before God and for all future readers. If you feel yourself too like you're in a cave and you want restoration, read Psalm 142 on your knees and cry out to God and make His words your words and hope that the Lord will bring some revival into your own spirit. Now let's look at David in this cave. Think of it. Who's gathered with him? He departs there. He escapes to the cave of Adullam. His brothers and his father's house heard it. And they went down there to him. And who else? The distressed, the those in debt, those that were discontent. They gathered to him as well. Who are they following? They're following a fugitive. This man is on the run. Saul is tracking him down. He's hounding him. He's after him to kill him. And they want to follow him? Why would you follow someone who's in danger and will put you in danger and put you on the outs with the majority? I mean, it's King Saul, the first king of Israel. He's the one that's pursuing this Shepherd boy, if you will, all over the place, throwing daggers at him, wanting his life. He has a thirst to kill David. We are also following, by the way, a fugitive. Remember Jesus, as we get the picture of him in the Gospels, we find over and over again that there was councils that had been convened to come up with a plan so that they could capture Jesus. So that they could put Him to death. They were always pursuing Him. That's why Jesus, when He would heal somebody, He would say, go and tell no one. Because what happened is, where where He was would become traceable. 
they could find out where he was and they would be able to capture him. And that's what Jesus was like for the most part. He was always on the run from the enemies who was constantly pursuing him. When John the Baptist was baptizing and saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan River, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And many came to the Lord Jesus. And then right after that, John says, What? Behold the Lamb. He's saying that to his own disciples. They're already God's children. They've been converted. Now it's behold the Lamb. That's the two kinds of lambs we need to see about Jesus. First, you need to see Him as a sacrificial Lamb who will bore the penalty of your sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sin. And then John the Baptist says simply, Behold the Lamb. And some of John's disciples left Him and they started to follow Jesus. They, they, were, they were falling behind Him. Jesus turns back and says, What do you want? What do you want? And what do they say? Where do you dwell? Come and see. Where does he dwell? Not in castles, but in a cave. The Jesus that we follow is a cave dweller. He's on the outside. And I think we can get a picture of David's life as a type of the Lord Jesus. Obviously, he fails in many ways, but this might be a portion of the Word where we can see a representation of the Lord Jesus. Many left John and followed Jesus. And say like Ruth, where you dwell, I will dwell. Your people will be my people. That's the kind of commitment that's expected for those who are going to be Jesus' followers. There is a cost for being a disciple. Do you want to be in the cave with Jesus? Or do you want to try to turn your Jesus into another than what He is? You know, like the Israelites, the manna that God sent from heaven, which was a type of the Lord Jesus, what did they do with it? They tried to change the substance. They tried to alter it by adding ingredients to it and changing its flavor and altering its state to make it more palatable to them. Well, that's what sometimes Christians want to do with Jesus. They don't want to have a Jesus in a cave, but they want to have a Jesus that's in an ivory palace. Scripture says, Let us go forth therefore unto Him without the camp bearing His reproach. I want to be with King David. I want to be with the commander-in-chief. Where you dwell, I'm going to dwell. If you're in the cave, Lord, I'm going to be in the cave. When others wanted to follow Him and become a disciple of of His, He said, whoa, hold on, folks. Do you realize who you're following? You're not following a fox or a bird because foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Do you really want to follow Me? Lord, I'll follow you. It may be in the cave that you're going to have to go, brothers and sisters. It says of Jesus that He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You're not going to win a popularity contest in school, kids, being a Jesus follower and being in the cave. I'd rather, though, be in the cave with Jesus 
than be in the streets with the kids of the world and have the salt lose its savor in my life. Jesus says, No one has left father or mother or children for my name's sake that shall not receive a hundredfold, both in this world and in the one to come. Yes, it is something very positive about being a Jesus follower. Just like the soul, the soul thirsted for the blood of Jesse's son, the leaders of Israel are depicted in the same way. We can't help but understand and expect that the world doesn't want the real Jesus. They don't want the real Jesus. You'll find the Jesus mangers out there, and you'll find certain things out there in the religious Christian world, the world of Christendom, but I'm afraid they want to portray a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. You know, it won't be long before churches that don't have rainbow flags outside of them are going to be looked at like a hostile, hating community of people that meet in that particular building. That's how distorted it's going to become because they don't want to know about the true Jesus, the true Jesus that followed His Father faithfully and that expects His, fo- his followers to follow Him and His Word as well. It's easy to be a follower of a popular hero. To follow someone who dwells in the castle and not in the cave. Jesus says, I've become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. That's the kind of one that we are following. Following. You know what's so impressive about the cave? It's definitely not the surroundings. There's nothing appealing. You know, the cave was basically like an underground bunker. That's all it was. It was an underground sort of a tunnel. Now, we have multitudes of people here. We have 400 men Besides that, his family. And who would be in that family? Remember his wife, Michal, M-I-C-H-A-L? She's the one that sent him off and put an image of his, like a, a body like his in the, in the bed pretending that it was, he was sick so that they wouldn't be able to capture him and her husband was sent off. Well, now she appears apparently again. She's going to show up to meet him at the cave. We've got to meet Jesus at the cave. And He's the captain. He's the commander. But what kind of people are these that are willing to be cave dwellers and to be David followers? We said that they are the three D's, the distressed, the ones in debt, and the discontented ones. And by the way, the word discontented ones, your ESV has the word... Bitter in soul. It is the word Mara. Remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and heading to the promised land and they came to the bitter waters of Mara. That's who these people are. They're bitter. Their, their life has been miserable. They're unhappy. There's no joy. They're troubled people. They're miserable. They're bitter people. And yet these are the ones that are coming to David. The ones that were in debt. The ones that were distressed. What kind of people come to Jesus? Our brother was reading in 1 Corinthians 8. 
Not the mighty. Not the noble. Not the rich. Not the strong. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. It's just the opposite. Because those that are rich, Jesus says, it's easier for them, it's easier for a camel to enter in the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why won't they come? Revelation 3.17 says, Because you are rich and increased with goods and you have need of nothing and you don't know that you're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. But we think because we're rich, we have no need of anything. You know why a person doesn't want to consider Jesus? Because they're content with themselves and content with their life circumstances. Even if they're bitter, they may still say, No, I don't want to change. But these who were there, the bitter ones, the ones in debt, the ones that were distressed, they came to David. You know, I'm sure you've had people, fellow Christians, neighbors, family members, friends, whatever, come to you with, a, with, a, with their problem and you're like, oh wow, I can't even take care of my own and i got to try to help this person and they're so off the wall and, it, and it's so difficult. You're like, yikes, how can I handle this? But what a difference with the Lord Jesus. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a welcoming, welcoming captain we have. Come on in the cave. I'll take you in. But He only takes those who really discover in their lives that they need the Lord. You know, D.L. Moody was preaching one time in an evangelistic service. And uh, the, the Spirit seemed to be moving in the Gospel that night. And in, in those days, it was sort of a forerunner to the altar call, but they called it the anxious bench, which I don't have too much difficulty with that, and I could say to anybody here, look, if you want to talk about what you're hearing, or if God is speaking to your heart, and maybe I should mention that more often, talk to somebody, talk to Todd, talk to Marcus, talk to Mike, talk to someone who knows the Lord and say, would you mind talking with me? I, I, need, I need spiritual help. I need the Lord in my life. Uh, would you be? I hope so. I hope you would. You would. You would have that desire. Are you on the anxious bench, maybe yourself, in needing spiritual assistance, in needing prayer, and most importantly, needing the Lord in your life? Well, anyway, Moody was preaching at the end of the service. There was a a gentleman that he was talking to, who had come up to the front, and he was talking with Mr. Moody, and there was another one sitting there on the bench nearby. And as he's talking to the individual up at the front, front of the pulpit, there was a woman that came down from the back. She was decked out to the nine. She had the big, beautiful hat with a feather. Her, her outfit was, no doubt, very expensive. This was a woman of the world, a woman of, of great wealth. And she comes down the aisle to, to D.L. Moody. And he lifted up his eyes and looked to her. And she said... Could I speak to you, uh, Pastor Moody? And what he did was, he said, See that man over there? And who it was? It was a man that was a homeless person. Shabby, grubby, unshaven. Just a low lifer, you would say. And he says to her, Would you go over and sit next to that gentleman over there? And I'll, I'll talk to you in a few moments. Just to test her. How humble are you, girl, after what you've heard? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. She should be willing to say, yes, I'll sit 
I'll sit wherever the downcast sit because that's where I am. I know better than them. I have the same contagious, sinful nature as they do. And I need the Lord. How humbled are we? You know, the disciples are composed of the, the poor, the meek, those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus' company was the publicans and the sinners, the prostitutes. Whoa! Jesus hanging out with them. Jesus wanting to associate with them. Come on in the cave. You want to have... You that are distressed, you that are discontent, you that are in debt, come on in. Come on in. In the cave. Not in the castle. Not in the ivory palace, but in the cave. It's not the mighty. It's not the noble. It's not the rich. It's a humble. With a humble, God says, with a contrite the contrite heart, those are the ones that God will reveal Himself to. This is the spirit that should characterize us as Christians. That where He goes, I will go. I see David now in a different character here. David's being revived. His family has come to him. We're going to see that he's going to take his family members. He's going to bring them into safety into Moab, which would have been a nearby uh, region that, he, that the cave of Adullam was in for their good and for their benefit. But he's also the captain and the commander of the 400 that came to David. Where did they come from? David didn't have a following like this that we read of before. But this is a miracle, really, of conversion, you could say. I'm following a Jesus that's hidden. He's in the cave. He's not popular. He's not liked. They don't want Him. But you know, in the long run, we're going to be so glad that we were Jesus followers. And He's going to be so proud of us, so to speak, for His own glory, of course, is He's going to put us on display. Because our life right now is hid with Christ in God. But then He's going to display it. These are my children. Come on out of the cave, brothers and sisters, and let's demonstrate the mighty work of God that's gone on in the souls of the distressed and those that are in debt and those that are discontent. Wow. David in the cave. Jesus, reproach. It says of Moses that he... Uh, he forsook Egypt, forsook their treasures, so that he could become a follower of the Lord. He esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Is this the kind of Jesus that we want to follow? Yes, it is. Is he the captain of our souls? Yes, he is. If God be for us, who can be against us? If I have to be in the cave with the Lord, so be it. If I have to meet with just a small community of people in a church setting, when we could maybe be in bigger churches where there's not the real gospel priest and where there's not truth that's magnified as it ought to be, to be there as well, I want to be with a remnant. I want to be with the people that love the Lord, that obey the Scriptures, that want to follow the truths of God. I want Jesus to be the captain of my life and the captain of those who I follow that the Lord might be glorified in us. So brothers and sisters, why did God save you? To be a follower, among nine other things at least and more, to be a follower of Jesus. So I wonder if the crowd was saying, where did David go? Oh, he's in the cave. 
Where is he? What cave? He's in a dullum. And I imagine they ran and said, I want to get there. I need David in my life. He's the anointed one. Nobody knows that. And it's true, the world doesn't know who Jesus is. They don't know that He's the anointed one. He's disguised to them. They have the King Saul's as their captains. We want David in the cave, the true anointed one, to be our captain. Let us recognize, brothers and sisters, what it is to be a follower of Jesus and to be with Him in a cave. The cave, one of the derivatives for the word for Adullam is the word justice. Justice. That's where I want to be with a just one in the cave of Adullam. Let's close in prayer. Loving God and Father, thank You for Your Word that teaches us, Lord, things that we would not otherwise know. Thank You that it's written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Thank You, Lord, that we can look back in the Old Testament and learn lessons from the life of like our beloved brother David, King David. The man that had days of trouble, trial, difficulties, and even sinfulness. But yet, Lord, You rose him up. You gave him life. You restored him, as it were. And we thank You that he becomes a picture of our Lord Jesus, whom You raised up from the dead and gave Him glory. And Lord Jesus, we truly want to be associated with You. Lord, we know that it's not right that we would choose company with others other than Yourself. So Lord, we pray for anyone in this room that may be troubled about their life, that may be in distress or in debt or discontent and bitter. We pray, Lord, that they would find life in Christ, that they would seek Him and find Him and come to a full knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So Father, thank You that once again we can give glory and honor to Your name and praise You for Your beloved Son. Receive our worship and our thanksgiving, Father, in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.